Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, to make this life count, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. This week, I'm super excited about it because the theme is how to preach with power. And I can't imagine a better person to interview than the person we've got here in the studio, and that's John Lusk. John, great to have you here on the program. Thank you, Rob. It's great to be here with you. You I love this whole venue. I love this format. It's cool that you're doing this. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot. You know, we've got a we've got a long history. We've known each other over 30 years, and uh, it's it's been a great friendship. And I'm looking forward to talking to you today, John. Share with me how'd you become a Christian? How tell me about your conversion? Man, I could take up like an hour just like most preachers, I imagine. But uh, which is important, you know, your conversion story is important. But but just I'll put it in a nutshell. I was an atheist, uh, gosh, most of my life since I was about, I don't know, 10 or 12. We stopped going to church and church had never impacted me very much. It was a denominational church. And then uh, when I was in college, first couple of years, pretty strong atheist. I used to publicly debate against the existence of the Bible and so forth. And, <laughs> but I did kind of wonder, you know, is there some sort of truth? So I started taking philosophy courses and reading a lot. And then God was just opening my heart. And then when I was at uh, Air Force field training camp, I uh, met this girl who was really cool and kind of opened my heart a little bit. And she got me to look at the Bible for the first time with an open heart. And man, it was it was really different than all that I'd been saying about it. It really, really touched me, really connected with me. We read about John 3, and she made me promise that when I went back home to go back and ask the guys who'd been inviting me for three years to come to Bible Talk, ask them if I could go. <laughs> so I did. I went back and started the semester my junior year. I knocked on their door, and I said, hey, you still have that Bible Talk? I had like curse them out for years. Get away from me. I don't want to come to your stupid Bible talk. And so they said, yeah. And I said, when? They said, Thursday. I said, okay, can I come? They said, sure. And I went, I said, see ya. And I went back into my room and, and then there was a knock on my door and I'm like, what? And they're like, what happened? Like, why do you want to come? And, and I told him how God had been working in my heart and we studied the Bible. And about a week and a half later, I was baptized. That's awesome. And what college was that? That was at Louisiana State University, LSU. Oh, okay. How are you feeling about that recent win? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I can talk about that for an hour too, man. That was awesome. Yeah, that was a picture book season for us. We loved it. You know, John, you're you're one of my favorite speakers. Every time you get up there, I'm just I I'm I'm waiting with anticipation. Who were some of your early models? Who inspired you early on to preach? Yeah, you know, um, my dad is a really great speaker, and my dad's—he was a professional speaker, but he was in the in the Coast Guard and was a three-star admiral, and he would travel all over the world and testify before Congress on Capitol Hill all the time, and speak to hundreds, even thousands of people at different times, and was a real colorful storyteller and stuff. So. He definitely inspired me. He's a great role model, and then in the church. Um, when I, I first started going to church, you know, I was kind of a, a little skeptical, a little cautious. I had never listened to a sermon my whole life. I mean, I just, 
you know, I was, again, I was in the Catholic church where they would talk like in Gregorian chant. And I would just like get so bored and fall asleep. But I listened to Barry Beatty, who yeah. is now in heaven. I listened to Barry speak and man, he was funny and relatable. And I thought to myself, I, I remember thinking this directly. I thought, you know, I really don't want to ever be a preacher, but if I did, I would want to be like that guy. And so from the very beginning, first sermon at church, it, it really made an impact on me the way he spoke. Interesting. That's really interesting how the, those early models can really stick with you. Uh, how did you, how'd you develop the tools to preach? What was your foundation? Like what'd you do initially? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, again, my dad and my mom, they were really serious about grooming all of our kids, all of their kids to be leaders. We had six kids. I was the youngest of six. Every night from when, let's see, I was probably five. Yep. Every night from when I was five years old at dinner, each kid had to do an oral report. And <laughs> we thought it was normal, but, but we, we had to do an oral report and we'd go around and and just talk, you know, to you're, you're looking at five siblings and then both parents. So it's a small group right there. And we're all speaking like that night after night after night for years. It wasn't just like for a week or something. It was like for years. And so that that really taught me a lot. And then in school, you know, there was oral reports that we had to do. And I always really liked that. I thought that I did well in oral reports. Then after becoming a disciple, like I said, I had great role models. But then I went to Harding Graduate School and I got a graduate degree in theology and took a lot of preaching courses and learned a lot about just classical training in preaching and read a lot. And that really helped me. It, it really helped me to have that kind of classical training. I, you know, when I became a part of our fellowship, I was really excited and our fellowship was amazing. It just kind of the, the passion with which people spoke yet there's kind of no replacing the classical training. And so I was glad that I had that foundation of communication already in place and then could add on the heart and the passion that I learned in those early years and still learning in the ministry. John, this is podcast is really trying to help guys that are wanting to be better, spiritually ambitious, people wanting to rise up, develop the tools to persuade people. What what are some what are three of the most common errors that you see out there that preachers are making, whether they're young or old? What what are you seeing as the most common mistakes where you go, yep, that's not working, that's not helping you? What what would you tell people? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. That's the kind of thing that like I, I talk to my wife about, you know, I don't usually talk to people about, but I mean, I do now, you know, if they, especially if they ask for input, but those early years I didn't, I'd say like right off the top of my head, first thing is lack of preparation. I, I think sometimes we have this mindset of, oh, it doesn't matter. God's just going to speak through me. And it does matter. You know, I, in, in grad school, that's what they taught us. They said, listen, you have an audience of 100 people and they're giving you 30 minutes of their time. That's 50 man hours being devoted to you. Wow. And they would ask, how much time in preparation is that worth? Hmm. 
And so I, I had that conviction from early on from grad school that, man, I'm going to spend the time. So, so that's one is you could just tell lack of preparation in many people. Another is just a lack of a good outline or kind of a good flow. And, and it's good truth that they're speaking with, but you just kind of go, where are you going? And it's just kind of all over the place. And then maybe I'd say, gosh, it's hard to narrow it down. A third thing, I'll say the third thing it goes with it, like an ac- a lack of organization and flow. But I'd say with that, a lack of uh, memorability. And, you know, it's, it's the organization, the flow, the, uh, the word choices, the sticky statements. Do you know what I mean mm-hmm. by a sticky statement? Yeah. You know, man, I will, I'm not kidding. I'll spend an hour on one sticky statement, maybe more. Well, maybe you can give me an example. What do you mean by that? What's a sticky statement? Um, you know, something that's just worded very well, like a profound point that's worded in a very memorable, catchy way. Okay. Like when there's something like that, and it can be really deep, it could be really simple, it could be somewhat long, but it's like the kind of thing that you just go, oh, that's good. I'm going to write that down. And it's funny because like, even while we're doing these online sermons, I'm able to send them to my family and stuff. And one of my sister's she'll comment after she always comments it's really encouraging but the thing she'll comment on is my sticky statement she'll say "Ooh, i love that line i wrote it down and posted it on my refrigerator and i'm like yeah that took an hour to come up with that (laughs) but it's that's the thing you're putting one of my professors used to say brother you got to put a handle on your sermon that when you have a really cool sticky statement like that good outline you have a handle so that truth that's in all of god's word you can carry it with you and it makes a difference. And then I'd say a third thing is a lack of connection that people, you know, they, they speak a lot of good truth, but connection is the conduit between your mouth and their heart. And it, it has to, it has to connect or it's just going to bounce off. Mm-hmm. So, and that's not an easy thing to do connection. That's almost four things right there. So preparation. I know I combined two to kind of, <laughs> kind of cheat there. Having bit. a good outline and structure, having <laughs> sticky statements, memorable points, handles on your sermon, and then the the last one was the personal connection. connection really yeah. putting yourself out there. Going back to the sticky statements, I remember when you spoke uh, in the on the West Coast one time, and I remember this statement. You said, "There's no grow without go." And your whole, your whole sermon yeah. was built around go, go and make disciples. I love that sermon and I'll still remember it, but uh, that's, that's, that's great. Yeah. There's no go. There's no grow without G-O, go. Yeah. The whole sermon was grow. There's no glory without G-O, without go. Yeah. Things like that, that man, I'll just sit there and I'll, I'll look through like synonym finder or rhyme finder and things like that. Antonym finder and just look for words that start with the same letter or words that have the same number of syllables because then I can make a cool parallel statement. Like things like that, it, it sounds silly and I don't do that for the whole sermon, but I'll do like maybe one of those in a sermon, but that's like the crux. Mm-hmm. And if I'm using a video, then usually I'll, I'll print that and put it on the screen behind me when I say it. So then it's kind of like in a, in a book when you read one, they have like a cool statement you made in bold, you know, yeah. like in between the regular text. That's kind of what a sticky statement is. Right. That's great. So that's cool. You remember yeah. that. Yeah, oh, yeah. It hey, it sticks. John, there's a lot of guys out there. They're preaching. 
They're in churches that are 20 years old, 30 years old, small churches, 30, 40, 50 people. These people have heard so many sermons. They're, they may come in bored. They're, they're not inspired. But the guy, he wants to inspire him. He wants to preach big. And he wants to really make a step up. What does he need to know? What, how's he going to make that step from really, uh, you know, just doing the Saturday night special, just throwing a lesson together to really having a deep impact with people that have heard a lot, heard a lot of sermons before? Gosh, that's a man. These are really good questions, Rob. That's like a question. I mean, that's a whole thing in and of itself. And I know people like that. Um, man, sometimes we got a tough audience and, you know, there are brothers most of them, and, and we love them, and they love us, and so forth. But yeah, when they've heard a, a million sermons, they're just there's kind of an you know a rough exterior that's built up, and it just can easily bounce off. And so I I think though that for that person, they can't think, okay, so since they're so old and crusty, they're not really going to listen. It doesn't make a difference. Like you can't give up on that. You got to think just the opposite. You go, I'm going to break through. Like I'm going to pique their interest. I'm going to work all the harder. I'm going to spend so much more time in preparation. I'm going to do so much more Bible study that I share some insight that that guy in the back that thinks he knows it all is going to go, Ooh, I haven't heard that. And I'm going to use some language, some cool words that that critical person that, you know, has four PhDs is going to go, I didn't know he knew that word, you know, like, like just to kind of think of your audience and go, I'm just going to pack more in there. I'm going to pack a little more spiritual depth, a little more cool words, a little more sticky statements, like I'm saying, more vulnerability, more raw passion, all the things that make a sermon great. There just has to be more, but not more length. You know, you have to be able <laughs> okay. to do that. And like, cause those same people, they're going to write you off, but you know, the shorter you can do that, the shorter time you can do that and the more effective it's going to be, but you know, 30 minutes, whatever, everybody's different in their ability to hold an audience, but you know, 30 minutes is a good guideline, 25 minutes, something like that, but they just have to think more. And, you know, I know there's some people like, uh, like Joel Nagel has a D group that they, they get together periodically and they listen to each other's sermons and they give input, a bunch of evangelists. That's a cool way to work on that. Just because sometimes we just don't, we don't know what we don't know. And we're, we're stuck. We think they're stuck, but we're stuck too. We're stuck in a pattern of our preaching and they're stuck in a pattern of listening and it doesn't work. So as the leader, you know, an object remains at rest until affected by an outside force. As a leader, you got to be the guy that creates that inertia that just puts more in there and then presents it to them and they'll go, wow. And then what I find is not only do they appreciate it and respect you more for it, but they start looking forward to church and then they start bringing their friends just naturally because they know, hey, this is going to be good. You're going to like this. There's a difference between bringing people because you know you should and bringing people because you know they're going to really like this. Yep. 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 That's great. Well, that, that leads me down a little side road. We're recording this right during the coronavirus pandemic. Everyone's in quarantine. A lot of people are, most people are doing online streaming services. How's your preaching changed now that you're preaching from home or a studio? Ooh, that's a really good question. Yeah, um, it has changed. I, you know, it'd be interesting. I'd like to go back and look at some of my videos before 
in an audience and then now. But what I find is when I'm just looking into a camera without a live audience, I don't have, I don't have any energy bouncing back and forth. And I realize that so much of the way I communicate is based on the, the feedback that they're giving me. And the connection is based on that felt feedback and their looks and their nods and their laughter and things like that. And it, you know, their energy becomes my energy, mine becomes theirs, and we feed off of each other. But to do it without the audience, it's like, it's like why LeBron didn't want to play basketball with no fans. You know, it's just, it's just not the same. There's not going to be the same level of competition. And so to manufacture that and just, you know, pretend you're looking at them and have that kind of energy. So I've had to work a lot harder on my energy in terms of the lessons themselves. I've had to make sure that they're 30 minutes or less because I just think, you know, watching, they, they don't, they don't have, you know, as much interest, you know, they get distracted. And so I, I do like in the past, I, I wouldn't, my, I wouldn't mind if I went 45 minutes at times because I could hold the audience that way, but in two dimensional form, I, I probably can't. And so, and I can't tell if I can or not, you know, cause I can't see how they're acting. They might've already left. Right. And so I go, okay, I got to make it max 30 minutes. Some people, maybe their max is 15 minutes or 20 minutes, but I feel comfortable 30 minutes. So I've made it shorter. Um, and I've worked harder on those sticky statements to really make sure there's something super memorable so I can make up for what I can't supply just in that felt in-person connection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So making it shorter and adding a lot more energy and making sure that it's more memorable. That's, that's good. Yeah. And we're, you know, and making it, you know, because the lack of connection emotionally that comes from physical closeness, I, I just have to work harder at like telling stories at adding humor at, at sharing vulnerably. Like I just, I put more of that in there. There has to be something like that, a connection moment with all of them. Just, just to make sure it gets through the screen. Well, I know I, I called you a few weeks ago to get input and ad advice on my sermon. And that's the input you gave me is to make more of a connection with people. And I think what was happening is I was staring like a robot right into that camera screen, <laughs> looking right into the hole without, <laughs> without any sort of uh, variation. And so since that, that's been good advice to open it up, relax, share more personally, be more relaxed and, uh, you know, let the emotion out, not, not be just yeah. robotic about it because you're staring at this screen. So that's great, great advice, John. You know, John, I remember when I was a, a young preacher going on my first mission te team to Portland, Oregon, and Saturday, Saturday night would come along and I just, I'd just turn into a grizzly bear. I mean, I'd go hole up in my, in my office and try to scratch out a sermon. So much pressure, you know, it's got to be a home run. My poor wife would come in, honey, you okay? And I just bark at her and you know, I, I didn't really have much of a pattern other than just the pressure alone would drive me to write a sermon. What what steps do you follow? What's your template? What's your schedule that you follow to to craft a sermon so you can write a good one without freaking out, you know, the night before? Yeah, man, another good question. And it's funny when you're sharing that, I'm remembering retreats that we were at together where we just stay up all night working on our lesson for the next day. <laughs> Couldn't enjoy the hotel or, you know, <laughs> wherever we were, because I'm just working all night just to do it. And, 
and I waited too long. I don't know why I did that for all those years. I'd wait till the last day. Now I never do that. Like I really like to preach in series. I, I mean, I can't remember the last time I did a one-off. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe like, okay, Mother's Day or Father's Day, something like that, I'll do a one-off. But maybe Easter or something. But for the, the most part, I do a series. And for several reasons, you know, a series creates anticipation to where people go, ooh, you know, like there's a cliffhanger the week before. They go, oh, I want to see the next installment. As long as it's the series isn't too long. And I was taught in grad school, okay, you got to keep it like, you know, maximum eight weeks or something like that. Everybody's different. Some people like long series. I don't, you know, I like to keep it tight. And so I I have a series, but then the other thing that that does is not only creates anticipation with them, but I know what I'm going to be preaching on eight weeks in advance or seven weeks in advance, six weeks in advance. I know it because I've planned it all in advance. I don't start a series without knowing what the, what each part is going to be about. I haven't written each part, but I know each part. So that's in my mind. And then that's what one of my preaching professors in grad school used to call the flypaper approach. And flypaper, it's such a gross illustration, but flypaper, most young people don't even know what that is, you know, but it's just this sticky paper that you lay out and and flies land on it and stick to it. It's kind of sweet. And the longer it's out there, the more flies it it collects. Well, it's the same way with a sermon idea that if you know a week or two in advance what you're going to be speaking on, then ideas stick to it. I could be out running mm-hmm. and an idea comes to me mm-hmm. and I'll just speak it into my phone in a note, in a little memo, or I hear a song and I go, oh, that'll be good for next week's lesson. Right. Or I read something in my Bible. Oh, that'll be good for that third week. And so it's, I, I have like time for them to mature and refine and develop. If you do that the night before, uh-uh. like no matter how good you are, you can't benefit from time. Mm-hmm. And it's time that makes those extra things that it, it makes a difference. People notice a difference. It's like, you know, it's like, I don't want to go into too much of a tangent, but like, you remember that movie, um, The Revenant? Yes. And The Revenant, one of my favorite mm-hmm. movies, I'd read the book. I love the book. You know, it's from your country. You know, right, there. right. And, and so I remember reading about how they filmed The Revenant, that it was all only in natural light. So they could only film 15 to 20 minutes the first part of the day, 15, 20 minutes, the last part of the day, that's the only time they filmed. And they ran out of time because the snow came up in Canada where they were. So they had to move the whole set to the Andes to catch the, the sun in a different, you know, at a different time of year. And so, cause they, they could only film for those 15 to 20 minutes twice a day. Well, when you watch it, you don't know that, but you feel the effect of those little nuances and it's why it wins best picture there's our best director whatever it won it's why it was so awesome right and it's the same thing with a sermon that there's you know the time you can't you can't replace that you can't shortcut it and so you need time and and not just 10 hours in a day but days to where things can kind of marinate and and rise to the surface and stick to you and those little nuances that one illustration, whatever, that's where people go, oh, that was really awesome. Right. That really helped me. I do that like when it comes to a, a sermon at a conference. As soon as I get my title, and I'm not kidding, as soon as I do, it could be six months in advance. I'm really working on it because I go, conferences, my conviction is it has to be a grand slam. Right. Like, right. They're paying a lot of money to come there. Right. And it used to bug me when I would go to conferences and I'd hear people 
laughing and teasing going man i worked on my lesson on the plane and the way here and i'm like yeah and i could tell you know, it's like i wasted my registration fee but but man when you can really spend the time and give them something that 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 sticks that's worth it man that whole conference was worth their money and worth their sacrifice absolutely so time makes it better like that yeah so that's one of the things i decide way in advance what i'm going to talk about and start thinking about it. I, I know there's people out there listening to this going, man, I, I can't plan out what's happening next Tuesday, let alone what's happening six months from now. Where, where does a where does a person start in getting getting a, a, a preaching calendar together? Like wh- what would be an easy first step for someone to let's say come up with something for the next month or six weeks? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. You know, it could be I would say do a series. Okay. And either a topical series or a Bible series. And if you do a Bible series, start, if you're doing it, if you're just starting it, start with a shorter book, you know, the shorter, the better. Again, like if you're just starting a series, a month is plenty. Like that's plenty. Cause after a while people are like, okay, I'm done, you know, right. ready for the next series. Right. And so uh, to do like a one month series would be really cool. And if there's a topic that you sit down, you go, what are the needs? You know, Oh, you know, it's February. Oh, you know, what if we talked about love, you know, something like that. Or if you, you know, you look at what are the needs in the church, like, okay, like earlier this year, over the Christmas break, we're evaluating, evaluating the church and the growth and stuff like that. And I realized as I'm studying things out that we had had one third, more than one third of our church move out in the last two years. So one third of our members moved away and half of our leaders had moved away over two years. And so then I'm thinking about the relational upheaval that that causes. People losing their best friends, losing their leaders. It like, it has a ripple effect that's really, really profound. Not to mention you're losing a third of your right, members exactly. in number, but it, you know, it has this effect on relationships. And I've been hearing people saying, I'm not close, I'm not close, I'm not close. And then I realized, well, this is why. So many of their friends have left and they've had to reshuffle Bible talks and stuff. So then I thought, okay, we got to fix this. Like we got to grow in our love. So our, our whole theme for this year is love overflowing. Mm-hmm. That our goal is we took a passage out of, out of First Thessalonians, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other. And so I go, let's just all focus on love. And then I did a series on increase our love from that passage. May the Lord make your love increase. And I thought, huh, how does God make our love increase? And I remembered I had done a series on increase our faith years before that was pretty effective. So I thought, well, let me do that on increase our love. And I studied out all the places I could find in scripture that the Bible referenced by example or teaching how to increase and grow in our love. Mm -hmm. And so I put together like a six-part series called Increase Our Love and planned it all out and did that. And so there can be a need meeting thing like that versus like what you don't want to do is just fill a slot. And that's what I think a lot of people do like, oh, what can I preach on? Hey, bro, you got any ideas? I don't do that. Like, I think what are the needs? Like what are the calendar needs or what are the needs of the church and come up with a, 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 a topic if I'm doing topical? a topic like that, and then plan it all out. And then I know I plan in advance. Okay, here's the six ways to increase our love. You know, each week, let me focus on one. And then in my calendar for that week, I plan it out. Okay, like I'm thinking about it, but then on 
Wednesday, I'll block out a couple hours. That's when I'm first sitting down to really work on my lesson on Wednesday. Then on Friday, I'm blocked out a couple hours, like nine to noon, two, three hours that I go, okay, now I'm gonna be working more on the lesson, kind of part two. And then Saturday, I'll work on the keynote. And so the reason I split it up like that is because I want, I want my ideas to mature and grow. And even Saturday when I'm working on the keynote, I, I look back on my lesson and I'm tweaking things because yeah. I go, no, 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 this is better. Like you go back and look at it. Those were all kind of rough drafts. Yeah. So I, I don't ever panic. And I have like, even within a week, I'll have two or three different settings planned in my schedule to sit down and work on the lesson. Yeah. That's, it's interesting, isn't it? Cause I like that idea. And it's, it's weird to me. I talked to my wife the other day. I thought, you know, I get so many ideas in the strangest places in the shower and in front of my sink when I'm sh shaving. I'll, I've got a little skylight that's right above the, the sink. I don't know if it's like God looking down on me, but ideas will just pop into my head and I'll think, oh, that's a great one for my sermon. And I, I think it's so true to let, let the ideas marinate and they come to you. But if you're under so much pressure, so many times I, I put together a sermon really late and then after the sermon was over, I thought, oh, I wish I would have shared this. Oh, uh, I missed uh -huh. that chance. So I appreciate the craftsmanship that you, you put into your lessons. Hmm. What does a beginner need to know or avoid? What, what's, what does a beginner, you know, he's just stepping into it, feeling a lot of pressure. What, what one thing could a beginner do that would really help him to kind of get a head start in developing some good sermons? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, listening to podcasts like this is a good idea. <laughs> and, you know, I think listening to other preachers, not just in our fellowship, mm -hmm. but, and, and sometimes we do that. We get kind of so, I don't know, ethnocentric, myopic right. within our fellowship. I only listen to preachers in our fellowship. Why? Right. You can get so many ideas, out-of-the-box ideas by listening to other people. So watching other sermons on video or listening to other sermons whether in our fellowship or out or preferably both, that's just great training, not to imitate. I mean, not to copy. I know we want to imitate, but not to copy. Like that, that really bothers me when people, and, and I have friends, really mature leaders that will buy a sermon package. Like, okay, you know, if you're really stuck, maybe I, I just have to say, I've never done it and I never will do it. Because I just consider like the joy of preaching for me is to be a prophet, to be a vessel. Right. And God speaks to me like you while you're shaving with the skylight. <laughs> like God puts a message on my heart and I just, and I digest it and I, I recapitulate it for people. To me, that's the beauty of, I feel God working mm -hmm. through me to just completely copy someone and just change the names. And I've seen people do it. I've literally listen to people preaching and then I, I'm, I Google it and I can find that lesson <laughs> and read what they're going to say next. And I just go, why do you even like to preach? Why don't we just give us the link to that guy's church? Oh my gosh. So I think we can learn and should learn from other people and imitate what's great, but not copy. Okay. Right. So that, that's one thing. Um, and I think that would really help. That can jumpstart people really quickly. And then again, I think just to put in the time, like just to make sure that they spend the time, it takes more time than they think. And I, like when I was in, in school, 
I would decide, okay, what kind of grade do I need on a certain test? And I would decide, okay, that, that's going to take X number of hours to get that grade. And, you know, of course, you, know, you always want an A, but you don't have enough hours necessarily to get an A in all of them. So I'd go, okay, this one, or it's diminishing returns in some. So you go, okay, this one for this class in steel design, I need to spend 40 hours in order to get an A and I need an A. So then I take out my schedule and plan those 40 hours. It's the same thing with preaching. I go, well, everyone's different, but how much time for a Sunday servant? How much time for a midweek, how much time for something like that, like, and then plan it, put it into my calendar. And when people say, I don't have time to, to do that, I, I go, then you don't have time to preach. Right. So to take time to do it, 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 it makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. You know, John, it, 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 it mystifies me. It blows me away when I talk to ministers of, of small or large churches and they say things like, I don't like to preach or I'm not, you know, preaching's not my thing. And I just, I just don't even know. I just go, I can't, what are you doing in this profession? You know, if you don't enjoy really a primary role, it's just kind of crazy to me. But in any case, let's, yeah, let's... You, know, you know, and I will say, I, I've told you this before, but I think there are some people who can be really good leaders and really good uh, organizers and good, you know, good connectors with people one-on-one if they don't have the gift of preaching, then I think they ought to consider augmenting their preaching with video sermons from somewhere else. We did that in Grand Junction. We sent out a mission team and we didn't have a preacher. We had good people on the team, but we didn't have a preacher. And so we go, okay, I'm gonna preach. And I would preach these 20 minute sermons and send them the videotape, the DVD, and they would put it in and show it. And so it was a way to get the leader up to speed and then, you know, he got to where he would do a month and then we give him a month of lessons. And then he got to where he's doing it all the time himself. And it really trained him and it gave him time. And the church was able to thrive and gets very used to watching things on TV. We're all watching church on TV right, right. now. Everybody. Everybody. And it's working. Mm-hmm. And so you can do that if you're in an, you know, you're in church, even if you're in church. A lot of churches do that in the evangelical world. Not because they they don't have a good preacher, but because that one guy maybe has an extra good gift and they have a local guy that can organize and, you know, organize the service and they can lead singing, whatever. But then you just put in a video, even if we're watching, like if we go to a conference and there's somebody preaching live and there's a big video screen, everyone looks at the video screen, not the guy live, even when you have the choice. Right. So we're all used to at this time looking at a screen and I think those who don't have that ability should not be unafraid to say, you know what, this is not my passion and I'm not that good at it, but I'm good at other things. If they are and they can make up for it, then, you know, then pipe in somebody else. Right. You know, you want to make sure that they've cleared it and stuff. Right. But then pipe in, try it for a month or right. try it for a couple of weeks and see how it works. That's, that's great input. Great advice. Hey, John, tell me about your, your pregame ritual. You know, LeBron, he's got the he's got the, the the powder in the air and all that kind of stuff. What do you do before a big sermon or even a, a regular sermon? What's what do you do to handle, you know, nerves? What what do you, what's your what's your thing? Okay, that's good. Okay, and you know, it's changed over the years. Right now, I don't stay out late the night before. Okay. If we have a date or something like that, 
Barry knows to say, you know, at like nine o'clock, hey, my husband's got to preach tomorrow, need to get him home. And, and if we if we set up something, you know, Saturday night like that, I tell her that, like, hey, could you help me out and and make sure that we leave at a certain time? We set an alarm so it goes off just because if I'm just if I get a good night's sleep, it makes a difference. And my audience is worth it. The church is worth it. And then I get up early in the morning and I've got everything all done, always. I just, I don't have to do anything on Sunday. I mean, maybe one in a hundred, but usually I, I don't have anything to do in the morning. I never set up appointments before church. I used to, now I don't. I want to be focused. And so I make sure I have a good prayer time and I go over the lesson many, many, many times. I mean, even if I'm really familiar with it, there's nothing that replaces that early morning right before familiarity. So I'll go through it and I'll make sure that the slides, I'll, I'll look at my slideshow and my, my notes, and my notes have different colors to coordinate. Like I put, a, I put the, the line in red when I hit the slide. And so I'll go through it and make sure that all the transitions and builds and the slides work and all the verses are correct. I go through that on Sunday morning and I practice it, hitting the slide while I'm speaking. And if I can do it out loud, I really prefer to do it out loud. Because when you just read through it in your head, it all seems to make sense. You do it out loud, then you get a different kind of memory and it, it, it flows the second time better or the next time better. Then I get to church and I'll get to church about an hour early. Um, and that's just because I want, I don't want people, you know, I, I love the people in church who get there so early practicing the music and everything else. And they get there way before I do, but I don't want to come in, you know, like two minutes before I preach. Right. So I get there, you know, not as early as them, but I'll get there at least an hour early. And then, you know, I kind of make an appearance and then I go in the back and I'm walking in these halls in, in the back area. And that's when I pray and I got my notes and I'm going over it again and again and again to where I'm so familiar with it that then I'm able to connect and there's certain points that I'm going to read it from my script because I've worked on those sticky statements. I've worked on the words and I want them to be precise, but I'm comfortable enough that the notes have glanced value mm -hmm. most of the time. So I can just kind of share and think while I'm sharing. I don't have to go, what was I supposed to say? What was I supposed to say? I, I can just kind of, I can say it without having to think. And so then new ideas can spring forth and there's a natural connectability that comes because of that. That's great. That's great. Now, do you preach off of paper or do you use an iPad, a computer? What do you do? Okay. And I've gone through a bunch of different stuff. <laughs> For me, I have, um, I have the slides and I like to, if I can, I like to use my computer as my monitor and advance the slides myself. At, at least I'm gonna have my computer as a monitor and you know use a clicker if I have to, if the projector's over there. Although, you know, recently in Des Moines, what I've gotten into doing is I, I use, like there's just the big screen. I don't have a monitor because we're kind of low tech here. I don't have a monitor, um, but I'll use the clicker and I'll turn around and read it like they're reading it. And so I'm mic'd up that it's not like I'm turning away from the mic. Right. So I'm mic'd up and I, I'm reading it with them, kind of pointing to the slide. And that kind of seems to be working. So I, you know, I'll, I'll read like that, but I have written notes and I've tried it different ways and I can use my computer. I mean, I can scroll with my computer. I do that too, but I prefer written notes because then I can make last minute changes mm -hmm. and I can scratch stuff off. Otherwise mm -hmm. I can't. 
and, and if I'm using my computer to advance the slides, then I can't have notes on my computer. But if I'm reading the slides, you know, like reading the verses and stuff behind me from the slides, or if um, I have a separate monitor, then I can use the notes on my computer if I need to. And all of my sermons are written on my computer so I can save them. Although I accidentally deleted all of 2019 sermons. I'm just like, I want to kill myself. I'm like, oh my God, I literally deleted it. Oh, I, no. just, I can't believe it. Oh, but, but um, you know, I have them in there and then I just print them off on Sunday morning. That's when I print it. I print it Sunday morning because I've made all the last minute changes that I want to make, print it. And then that's when I practice from those notes. John, what, what do you consider a golden moment in your preaching a time you look back and go, man, I'm so glad I'm a preacher. Like, give me, give me a high point. Give me a mountaintop experience preaching where you go, that was awesome. <laughs> you know, it's funny because, you know, you, you don't want to be vain, right? And you don't, you know, you don't want the applause and stuff like that. And yet, it's hard to deny, you know, that that stuff is encouraging, right? I mean, it's the reason people do it. Um, so, you know, I have some moments like that, like you referenced that lesson in Long Beach. I mean, there's an auditorium of 10,000 or so people and the closing message on a Sunday. And, and, I, and I, I really worked on it. I thought it was a really helpful lesson just to call us all to go, you know, in the mission. That was one of those when I closed my eyes, I just go, yeah, I could go to heaven now. <laughs> you know? I love that. But, you know, honestly, I, I can get, I can feel that way after a lesson in Des Moines. You know, I've been here in Des Moines for a year and a half. And uh, on Sunday, we have a hundred or so people, not in the auditorium, that includes kids and, you know, and kids, can, kids kingdom workers. So maybe in the auditorium, 85 people or something like that. And it's the smallest group I've spoken to since I was in Sacramento, you know, since I was 26. And so it's, you know, sometimes I struggle with, man, I put all this effort in, and, and it's such a small audience. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I did like at first, I knew that was going to be a cost account. And, you know, you just don't feel the same energy. Sometimes to be honest, I wonder like, and do they even appreciate it? You know, I mean, I'm spending so much. These are like seminar kind of lessons. Right, right. And, but then, you know, but then it's helped me because I go, man, I'm preaching for the Lord. And right. whether, you know, it's 80 people there or 8,000 or something, I, I like the feeling of being used by God to convey his word. And I like it when I can take something deep and have people have an aha moment with it. And it really makes a difference. Like, I, I love that. And not just where they go, hey, great job. Because they say that to anybody. Right. I say that to anybody. You know, right. I go, right. if I say it to anybody, then, you know, I gotta can't always believe it when they say it to me. And so, matter of fact, sometimes you say it the most when somebody didn't do a good job because right. you just want to encourage them. But when they say something later or they write a note or they reference it later or remember it and thank you for it, then, you know, those are the moments I go, yeah, it's really worth it. Like, like you commenting on that lesson, I, that really, that really warms my heart. I just go, wow, you know, somebody remembers that from so long ago. It really, it means a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a lot of good memories from your preaching. I remember there was a time when I, I was preaching in, in Tokyo and I got to, it was like 10 minutes before I was supposed to get up and speak. I was preaching to the whole church. And I realized that I had lost my notes on the subway on the way there. 
And <laughs> oh, it was just terrifying. And we stalled and luckily they, they came, I got them, but it was so scary. Can you share about a time when, you know, either a big embarrassment or a tough time that you had in the pulpit? I, I've had many, many times when I just, I, I took off immediately afterwards. I wanted to cry because, you know, I thought that was the stinkiest sermon on record. <laughs> But give, give me, give me a, you've had some high points, many, many. So every, every time you just go, that, that was just a total stinker. Yeah, there are times that I feel that way. Although I got to be honest, there's not that many because I really do spend a lot of time preparing and stuff like that. Like I just, I don't want there to be that many like that. But yeah, there's times that it just go, I just didn't feel it today. You know, mm-hmm. there's, even if I look at it on paper and I go, everything's there and I feel like my energy's there. I just, sometimes I just go like, is anyone even listening? Right. And it's not their fault. It's just, there's something missing. And that that's when like, I'll feel the temptation, like just run away, run away. Like, <laughs> or I want to wake up and it was a dream and you know, something like that. And I'm just, I'm just going, just keep doing it because you're preaching God's word. It's going to be helpful stay the course. So I felt that, okay, the first Sunday of this COVID thing. So we got the word on Friday night that from the hotel that we weren't going to be able to meet in our meeting place. So then I decided, okay, I'm going to upload a sermon. And I didn't want to do it live because I was skeptical of our Wi-Fi. So I uploaded a sermon. Well, I, I had the hardest time uploading it. It just it wasn't working. I, I drove to a Panera where there's faster Wi-Fi and I sat there and it was like, it looked like it was going to make it. And I thought, okay, it's going to make it. I told people on Facebook Live, it's going to be five minutes late because it's like 2% left, you know, 1%. And then it, it finished uploading, but then it said, now processing. Oh, I'm like, no. oh, what does that mean? So I didn't know how long it would take to process. And so then I thought, I got to do it live. And so I had the camera pretty much set up, but I was just scrambling. I wasn't planning on doing it live. I'd literally stayed up, I mean, almost all night, except for like an hour and a half, just trying to get it to upload. I was really out of it. And during that time, my mind was like kind of out of it. And I, and I really had this thought of just like going, hey, you know what? Let's just wrap it up for you. For now. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's literally going through my head. But I just was like, stay the course, stay right. the course. And so I did, but you know, it just felt like, thank God that's done <laughs> and, I, and it's over. And man, from now on, I'm doing it way in advance and I'm uploading it like Thursday or something like I just, you know, but that was even recently. Right. And I told Barry, I said, gosh, all my years in the ministry, that was like the worst, most stressful preaching moment I can ever remember having. And right. it was like, Four weeks ago. Right. So it's, I just wouldn't expect to have a moment like that, you know, at that point in my right, life. Right. Right. I had something similar a couple of weeks back when I was just waiting for the sermon to get uploaded. And I'd had a great quiet time. I'd gone out for a run. I was feeling really up. And then that thing was not coming. I thought, we're going to have to cancel service today. There's not going to be any church. And I'm going to look so bad. <laughs> I'm just going to look like such a doofus. And luckily it went on, but still emotionally, I was just trashed that day. And Oh my gosh, it, it's it's challenging. Yeah, There's a lot of emotion yeah. there. Well, let's just kind of switch it up. Let's, let's switch the focus here. Your wife, Barry, is a great speaker. She's a powerful preacher. And uh, let me just ask you this. Did you help her or did 
did she just pick that up on her own or did she go to preaching school or how did Barry develop her skills? Yeah, that's a good question. Barry is an excellent speaker. And, you know, I feel badly because a lot of times I'll get asked to speak at conferences or things like that. And because I'm speaking, they kind of think, okay, we covered the Lusks. And so then she doesn't get a chance to speak. And, and it's, it, it's kind of like, because I do it a lot, she gets to do it less. And it's, you know, it's a bummer. Even like church here, you know, like we'll have couples get up and do things all the time, but because I'm up there, we're not going to get up and do something extra as a couple. So she doesn't get to, I don't know. So, you know, that's just kind of a challenge that comes from being, being a preacher's wife sometimes, but she's actually really, really good as you know, but yeah, she's naturally, she's, you know, charismatic and dynamic and stuff like that. She has great personality, deep conviction of God's word, very well worded, very relatable and vulnerable. So she has all that down, but there was a point that she just, and she tells a story all the time, but she just said, you know, what she says is she goes, I was being prideful and not wanting to learn from my husband. And I'm trying to learn from all these other women. And then I just thought, you know, what am I doing? I'm married to one of the best speakers. Let me just learn from him. And so she really started listening at a different level, listening to learn and to imitate. And she did. She became like a fantastic student. And honestly, her preaching really, really improved. And then, you know, she's worked it into her own style, but that really helped shape her and she'll be the first to say it. And, you know, it's funny, Rob, because even in the ministry, like, like I've had, I've worked with a lot of evangelists over the years and trained a lot of evangelists. And I can count on, on one hand, the number who have really imitated my preaching like, like Brian Campbell, you know, he, he comes to mind, there's a few others, but where he just goes, I'm going to really imitate John. And, and they're just so much better. You know, you imitate then improvise. They can always become themselves, but there's so many people that are so prideful that they just are stuck in their own way. And, and they're not being asked to speak at conferences. They're, they're not traveling around and they wonder why. And you go, well, you know, you could grow in your speaking. Once you just learn from other people. Well, Barry doesn't have that problem. I mean, because she really made that decision and she learned and now she's gone, you know, beyond me and she knows how to do it to the women way better than I do. Mm. But yeah, she, she had natural ability, but then did imitate it as well. And she asked my input, you know, yeah. there's many times, you know, Hey, is there another way I could say this? What do you think of this point? You know, what do you think of this? How can I do this differently? And I love helping her with that. That's great. That's great. She's, I love to hear her speak. You know, it's interesting. Of course, we don't have any sports here because of the coronavirus and stuff like that. But, you know, it always amazes me. Like you've got high school, high school uh, basketball players and you've got college or football players. doesn't really matter. And you've got stars in high school and you think, oh, that guy's going to go on to the next level and he doesn't make it. Or you've got college stars. You go, that guy is a shoe in for the NBA. He's amazing. Doesn't even get looked at during the draft. And then you get to the NBA and you've just got this you know, very, very few super skilled players. And then even in the NBA, you've guys, you've got guys that were awesome, that were championship level in the college ranks, and they're sitting on the bench for the, the rest of their career. Yeah. It, it's it's kind of mysterious. What is it that's that little extra that that sets people above? Now, when it comes to preaching, like 
what about your preaching do you feel like sets you apart? What is it? Because everyone's, you know, you got a whole bunch of preachers out there doing it every Sunday, Wednesday, leading Bible discussions. What can people take away from you that can get them to that next level? You know, maybe they're at the junior college level right now and they want to get to, you know, division 1A, so to speak, in the preaching, or they want to go on to the pros. What would they need to do? What could they learn from you that, that's going to set them apart? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, everything that I do, I've learned from somebody else, pretty much everything. And I, man, I love imitating. I, I mean, I remember, gosh, this one guy that I really loved his preaching. I remember going down to his church. It was in another city and just watching him. Like, I just want to watch him preach. And, you know, we didn't have videos and stuff back then, but I would watch the way he stands. I'd watch the way he moves his hands. And, and I literally would just start, you know, kind of imitating that. And, and we used to tease about it back in the day, you and I, about, you know, some people try to do that and it's really <laughs> fake. But, but I mean, I, I like to imitate that. I remember in grad school, you know, I took a preaching class and we had to come up with two projects, our own projects that we would work on the whole semester to improve our preaching. And one of mine was an illustration file. You know, I created like an illustration file, like stories and stuff like that and categorized them by topic so I could refer to them when I was putting together a lesson. And then another was my voice. And it sounds silly, but I had a semester long uh, thing where I'm just working on my voice because I was listening to my messages and for some reason I kind of talked like this, like in my early days, I don't know the power of a whisper. I don't know, but, but it was really weird. And, and I, I thought, man, I, I can't hear myself. So I started recording my lessons. My project was I would record my lesson and listen to it. So I had one lesson and I listened to it nine times, literally nine times. And I remember it was, it was the night time that I heard myself repeating a certain word over and over and over. And when you do a, you know, a, a, an unconscious repetition like that's called noise, you know, it's just backwards distracting to people. And so then I thought, wow. And, and so I eliminated that, you know, like, like it's the little things like that, that, I mean, it takes time and mm -hmm. to imitate this from that guy and this from this guy and to work on your voice and to work on the way you stand. And man, I used to take a, a verse that I really liked, a powerful verse, and I would practice it in front of the mirror. Just how can I emphasize different things from this verse? Or, you know, in some exercises I've done with people, we preach through the alphabet. I got that from Preston Shepard years right, ago. And right. just you know, kind of work on, you know, you go, A, B, <laughs> C, D, like, and you can do it so differently, but you learn the power of, of emphasis and of oratory without even focusing on the truth of what you say, you know, right. how you say it. Jesus was taught what to say and how to say it. Right. So, I mean, there's so many times I've worked on how to say things like that, or, or if I know I'm going to be, I'm reading a passage, of course, I know I'm going to be reading a passage. I work a lot on how to read it publicly out loud. Because it, it stinks when you're like stumbling over stuff and don't know how to pronounce certain words. And so I practice reading it in advance to where when I read it, they hear it in a way that they haven't heard it before. That it's it's kind of a message in and of itself. Just the, the emphasis I'm having when I read it. All those little things are what make a lesson the difference between a lesson and like something that's really good, you know, yeah. that's kind of a masterpiece. And 
most people just don't spend the time. So I would say spend the time, read the books. I've read so many books on preaching. Watch, like I said, watch the different videos of people all over the world. See what you can imitate. Get people to critique you. Mm -hmm. You critique yourself. Like there's so many things like that. But overall, what I want people to leave with is inspired. Yeah. Like period. Yeah. I go, that's what I want. I want them to be inspired. And sometimes it'll be kind of a convicted inspired. Sometimes it'll be a uplifted inspired. Sometimes it'll be like kind of a taught inspired, but they have to be inspired. Right. Like they just have to leave inspired. So, right. you know, I consider inspiration like the most important thing. Well, that's something that's always impressed me about you, John. Going back 30 years, the attention to detail, the focus on the little things, I think they call it deliberate practice these days, where you focus on your weaknesses, like whether it's your tone of voice, like you mentioned, or your, your tonality, or little things like how you stand things like that and going after this, doing the reps, putting in the practice. It's like Larry Bird, you know, shooting 500 shots after practice or something like that. Just the intensity to develop the skill. And I think a lot of people want to be good speakers. They want to be inspiring, but they're not willing to put in the boring behind the scenes work that it takes to become a great speaker. And it takes a lot of work. And a lot of it is very boring and repetitive and, you know, looking at old sermons is not always inspiring. It can be kind of embarrassing at times, but that's what you're willing to do. And I think that's what it takes to become a master preacher, to preach with power. And that's what I see in you. So thank you for that, that input. Tell me, let's just switch the subject from preaching, go a little bit broader here right now. Tell me something that, that keeps your spiritual fire and your ambition burning brightly. Look, what... What gets you up in the morning, John? Like you've been a disciple for 40 years, probably. How do you keep fired up in your 50s and, and just keep going? Yeah, man, isn't that the question? You know, above all else, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. You know, I, it's funny, Rob, because in my earlier years, it was one thing. Um, and then that one thing kind of like doesn't light my fire like it used to. And I think a lot of people kind of give up at that point or they just flatline. And I get it. Like I used to really criticize people like that in my mind. Like I'd be like, you know, you're not inspired. So how can you be inspiring? But then when I started experiencing that, I go, oh, oh, it's hard. Like that one source of inspiration, like for me, literally in my earlier years, I would get up in the morning really early. And the first question I'd ask myself is, do you want to evangelize the world or not? And that's, that's what I would say. And that would get me up and literally get me up in the morning. It pushed me. It drove me. That's back when I was at LSU leading the campus ministry there. And, and then, you know, I, I don't want to say like I stopped worrying about that, but that wasn't the thing that drove me. Um, so you got to find something. I think the most common thread for me is Second Chronicles 16.9. That, that's like my theme verse that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, searching to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And I just want God's eyes to stop on me and just say, that's what I'm looking for. Because wow. he sees so many people that hurt him. And I know in my sin, I know I hurt him as well. But I, I want him to find a person like he found in David and like he's looking for that not that they're perfect, but just that they're devoted. And so I really strive to be that. And, and man, I've erred and I've messed up. And I'm sure there's days that 
I've not been that to God, but that is the thing that really makes a difference for me. You know, like Paul charges Timothy in view of God, his appearing in his kingdom. And that's it in view of God, like living in view of God, that I want God to be pleased with me. That really, really motivates me. That's awesome. That's great. What, John, what, you know, we've got an audience of people that really want to grow. They're, they're, they're listening this far into the podcast because they, they want to develop the skills to make a difference. What advice would you give a person, whether it's a man or a woman, who wants to make a difference and live a, quote unquote, no regrets life? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, you know, my most common answer to questions like that is to use the Great Commission as your compass. Like, you know, our lives are just a compilation of choices and we're, we're making choices all the time. Do I step up and do this or do I take this job or do I go to this place? You know, we're, we're facing all kinds of choices and there's a lot of things, a lot of variables and a lot of tests we use to determine which is the right choice. But for me, my final deciding factor is I use the Great Commission and I go, which choice is going to save the most souls in the long run of my life Mm. and long run? Because sometimes, you know, short run, it's, it's different than long run. And so when I'm facing some life decision, I go, I'm, I'm committed that I'm going to choose the path that I believe is going to save the most souls in the long run of my life. Mm. And that's what led me to Bangkok. I mean, that's what led me to the Philippines and led me to Denver. It's what led me to Des Moines, even though the smallest place, but I really felt called and for the great commission. I looked at the number of churches that are under a hundred and how few of them grow over a hundred. And in, in, you know, I had a lot of thoughts about that and I thought, you know, this is just a, this is a good charge, a good challenge that could make a profound difference. Right. And, you know, a lot of other factors too, but, but I'd say that like just a no regrets life for me means that you follow the great commission and do whatever is going to save the most souls by the time you die. Cause ultimately that's all that's going to matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's interesting. There's so much talk, especially in church growth, literature about, you know, developing a mission statement and, you know, uh, developing a plan for your church and things like that. And yet Jesus pretty much lays out that, that mission statement right there in Matthew chapter 28 to go and make disciples of all nations. And it's right there. So that's, that's a good guiding, uh, compass, so to speak for, for a person's life. Tell me about a time when you came back from a setback or failure. You know, ministry is is one of the, I, I think it's the toughest job out there, period. And I've, you know, Peter Drucker said that ministry is the toughest job. Leading a small church, it's challenging. Tell me about a time when you came back from a setback and how'd you do it? And what advice would you give to people who are dealing with failure or discouragement and they're going, man, am I really cut out for this? Can I make it? Can I become a great preacher? Should I stay in the ministry or should I get out? Mm, that's a good question. These are all good questions. I have a couple thoughts. Like one, and you kind of asked earlier, to, to relate back to something you asked earlier, like what what's kind of a moment you had that you kind of blew it or something in, in the pulpit? And I kind of had a moment like that when I was 
in the Philippines, after being in the Philippines, I was looking at my sermons and I was really fired up about my sermons, thought I'm preaching really good. And then I realized like all of my sermons basically have the same outline. God's awesome. You're not doing enough. Repent and do more. Mm-hmm. And like, that was like my outline. And, and it was just always pounding. And I had this thought, like, I just need to call them to do more every time. I need to convict them. They're not doing enough. And then tell them to do more. And I would leave going, yeah, you know, I told them. And I look back and I go, you know, what does that do to a people every week to hear you're not enough and you need to do more? And it was one of those moments that I just thought, I think I've torn down a lot of people. And, you know, I think the strong kind of survive, but the accused, they don't survive. It just, it wears them down. And I thought, I think I, you know, I was kind of taking pride in my preaching, but I think I was really hurting people at the same time. And so I really tried to shift and, you know, I, I to just go, I, I got to build people up and it's okay to have sermons where I'm not calling people to do anything. Mm-hmm. I was of this mindset. I always got to call them to do something. It's not good if you don't call them to do something. I've heard all the books and stuff like that. I go, why? Like, sometimes I love the, the, the verses I read where it just says you are something already. And wow. look at God, God is something. It's not about you. And so I have really tried to change that, but that was a big turning point in my preaching slash theology, you know, kind of, but, but, you know, in terms of like failure, well, man, I think about my recent time in Denver and man, that was the hardest transition in my life. Just, you know, we were there nine years and then in a row. And then before that, another five, five years, yeah, almost five years. Yeah. 14 total years in Denver. It was like almost half of my ministry career was in Denver and through a number of complicating factors, just too many to list, some my fault, some not my fault, maybe most my fault, some health, some relational, some spiritual, some ministerial. It just got to the point that I go, you know what, I've overstayed my welcome mm-hmm. and this, the magic's kind of run out here and it's time to move on. And that was really hard. And so we resigned and man, it was difficult. We were unemployed for four months living in my in-law's bedroom in Louisiana. And they were very nice. We got really close to them during that time. But, you know, I'm like 50 something years old living in, in a spare bedroom out of a suitcase for four months mm. looking for a job. And then to have to go around and apply for different jobs in different churches, which was really nice that there was some opportunities like that, but I'd never had to do that. And usually I was being sought, I was being recruited. And so, you know, it was, it was really hard. I, you know, I always have said like, when God wants your influence to grow, he puts you in positions to influence more people. And then I'm like, well, does that mean God doesn't want my influence anymore? And so, you know, I, I had those feelings or like I said, when I would look out in Des Moines and love the people, but I'd see 85 people and just go, wow, like, you know, am I, am I on my decline? Like these are just, I I didn't realize how still numerically wired I was and, and so much selfish ambition. I remember talking to AT about it. AT, 
That guy is amazing. When it comes to purity of motives, I know no one like him. I mean it, like no one. He's incredible. If people could get and really see what this guy, who this guy is, uh, it's it's amazing. But I remember telling him that, just saying, bro, I feel like, I kind of feel like I've been benched, like I've been demoted, and you know that God's put me on the on the sidelines. And and he just said, John, like, what what are you thinking? He goes, you have an incredible life. You you love God. You have a wonderful wife and family, and you're preaching God's word, and you're serving a wonderful congregation, helping people to know God. What do you want? And it was really good just to to change my way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And and actually, I've really loved the challenge of having to connect with people and do everything myself. You know, I don't have any staff. You know, so it's right. just it's me and Barry, and I can't ask her to do everything. And so you know, it's just really different. And but it's good. It's a good change from working through multi levels of staff to just doing the counseling and doing all the Bible studies and having all the appointments. It's been very therapeutic and, and eye-opening and helpful. And so this has been one of those times that just there's been such a life change than the things that used to drive me, the big and being on all these international committees and speaking at all the conferences and overseeing this big church and planting all these churches. That, that was like so much a part of me. And when it's gone, then I'm like, well, what is there? Well, God's the same and serving people's the same, but that wasn't enough for me. And so that was like this turning point that I go, I got to change spiritually to realize that's all that mattered in the first place. So, yeah, I think it's, you know, adapting to whatever new environment you find yourself in and not beating yourself up over the past. I could do that. And I could look back, I could beat other people up in my mind or beat me up in my mind, <laughs> both. And I've right. done both many times sure. and it's fruitless. It's just, it's just fruitless. Like, it's like Paul says, you know, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what's ahead. But I want to learn from the past, right. but I want to look ahead and go, okay, now I'm in this place with all my knowledge and life experience. Now, what do I do? Right. What does life look like for me? now and what can i do to bring god the most glory and pleasure right now yeah that's great thank you there there have been times when i I look in the past and i just i just literally wince and cringe and just go oh i I can't believe i said that or i did that and it's tough i think the emotional side the mental side of ministry dealing with setbacks and we all face them i mean paul paul certainly did struck down but not abandoned you know there's so many times he just shared it was tough. It's challenging, but um, you know, the fact that you are are doing great and you're in a great ministry, John. It's I'm inspired by what you're doing. Your life is an inspiration, overseas missionary, and you've you've served the kingdom in a powerful, powerful way, and have got many more years ahead of you. So that's I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in the future. Let's let's change the subject entirely. You're an expert in archery and bow hunting. So how did how did that happen? And uh, just give me a quick rundown. And how, how'd you get into bow hunting? Okay. You know, my dad had such a big influence on me, as I talked about from speaking and stuff like that. And he taught me to bow hunt. My dad was a competitive archer and really effective at it. So was my mom, actually. And so from a young age, when I was like five, I had a bow and would shoot and grew up bow hunting and stuff like that. And I gave it all up when I was in the ministry, because there just wasn't time. And in campus ministry, 
in the fall, like fall is everything for a campus minister. And that's when hunting season is. So I just, I just didn't do it for years and years. And it wasn't until I think I was like 38 or something like that, that somebody invited me to go hunting. And I did. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I really like this. And, and then I was 40 and Barry goes, okay, you get an extra big birthday gift. What do you want? And I was thinking, huh, like, what do I want my hobby to be now that I'm 40? And so I picked a bow and we just moved back to St. Louis where I was when, when my dad was a competitive archer, it was in St. Louis. Matter of fact, I started to go shoot at the range that my dad built. I mean, he built this range in this park. And so it was kind of cool. I even met one of his old friends there. Oh like, my gosh. It was weird. It's like space folded. It was, it was incredible. But, but anyway, you know, I, I started that when I was 40 and now I've just gotten more and more into it. And it's become like, it's really out of a conviction as well as a passion that I, I remember talking to Scott Green years ago when we moved to Asia and I said, Scott, how do you make it as an American white dude in the ministry in Asia? And he said right away, sources of strength. And I said, what do you mean? And he shared about how burnout he had been at one point and he realized that he just wasn't filling his tank and he needed to have more things in his life that gave back to him. So for him, it started with his walk with God, his time with his family. He wanted a house with a little yard and it's hard to get in Hong Kong. He moved way outside of town to get that and needed a little yard. He loved volleyball. I, I remember this talk like it was yesterday. He liked working out. And so he started doing those things and it really started recharging him. And so I did that when I was in Bangkok, but I, I could, I didn't do hunting because it's illegal because they believe in reincarnation. It's like a sin to kill an animal. And so I didn't do, I was, I was out of luck that way, but, but it was basketball and I'm not a good basketball player, but basketball and racquetball. And so those were like my sources of strength. And when I came back to the States, you know, again, I just started thinking, okay, I need to, I need to have things that give back to me and literally physiologically replenish my serotonin. And to say it's all comes from God, it's pretty naive. God, God gives us other things to help us. It's still God. You know, it's like we, we could say, I don't need to eat because God feeds me. You know, right. well, God gives you food to eat because right. you need to eat. God gives you other passions to do to replenish your serotonin. And so I, I really believe strongly in people having some sort of a hobby that for them really stimulates them and recharges them and fills their cup so that they can continue to go on and not burn out. And for me, that's hunting and archery. Well, you've really gone far with it. I know I've seen, you've got your own YouTube channel. You've got sponsorships yeah. from uh, com companies that make broadheads, arrowheads, and it's really impressive what's what's going on. It's it's more than a hobby. It's it's quite a uh, you know a passion for sure, and and it it certainly stands out. How do how do you how would you balance it? Let's say someone's sitting at home going, oh, I wish I could do something like that. You know, I'd love to do this, but you know, the ministry takes all my time. I can't do that, or my wife won't 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 let me, or whatever. What encouragement would you give to someone to do something that's going to help, um, you know, strengthen a person spiritually? Man, that's, it's a great question. And, you know, I found honestly, a lot of times in my earlier years, when, even when I had these passions and hobbies that were recharging me, when I was preaching, 
I'm telling other people they're spending too much time in their hobbies and they need to be preaching the word. <laughs> <laughs> How hypocritical is that? It's just like, it's just terrible. And I, I think I've, I've not helped people for a number of years, but then we had a point that I really believed in it. And we started helping a lot of people with it. Like, like Brian Campbell, for example, when we moved to Denver, he was a part-time intern and he was working kind of full-time and was working in ministry part-time and he was just burning the wick at both ends. And I looked at him and I go, he's going to burn out. Like what you're doing is not good. You know, like Jethro. And I told him, listen, bro, on Friday, you need to take a day off. Just Friday needs to be your day off. Go fishing. And like I said, at least half the day, he couldn't believe it that I told him. I like kind of charged him as his boss, like go fishing. Man, it changed his life. I mean, you know, he's a guide level fly fisherman anyway, but but it just, it just sustained him during the most intense pressuring times. And so we've had many counseling times with couples where Barry will talk to the wife about her having a hobby. And a lot of times for women, like the hobby is their kids. And for us, we have girls. And that's what really gives to Barry. Great. If that's your hobby, great. That's not my hobby. Right. I love my kids, right. but that's not my hobby. Right. And so Barry understands that her dad was is still is a big hunter. He's like 85, 86. And he's still, or no, he's, I don't know how old he, no, he's not that old. I mean, he's like 79. Yeah. Or 80. Yeah. He still hunts all the time, but she understands that. So she encourages the wives to support their husband to have some sort of a hobby, whether it's golf or tennis or running or something like that. You need something that's not just a boring, repetitive thing, but something that gets you excited. Mm. And that's what I think. It's something that, that replenishes your serotonin, not just because it's a break from the ministry, but because it's something you look forward to wow. and something that when you're doing it, your juices are flowing. That's and so great. for me, that's archery. And it has evolved into the YouTube channel. And, and that's cool. You know, I got like all these millions and millions of viewers and and sponsorships and it's a cool little sub hobby within my other hobby. That's great. Well, how do you balance it, John? How does it, you know, stay, you know, as a hobby and not your primary, primary mission? Yeah. 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 It's easy. Like you talked about shadow missions before and you know, it's true that, you know, you got to be aware of the shadow missions. I, I do have to constantly remind myself what I'm alive for. And right. like anybody does what we're living for, like everybody who's working a job, man, their, their juices flow and their energy spent at their career, but they got to remind themselves the reason they're alive is to serve God. Well, same thing. I have a hobby that I love and I could do that almost 24 seven, but that's not why I'm alive. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to be my lifelong legacy. And that's not my overall purpose in life. And so I do need to guard it and need to watch it, but I really love the ministry too. Matter of fact, being here in Des Moines, I love the ministry a lot more than I loved it when I was in Denver. Wow. Like in Denver, there was so many meetings and so many, you know, I'd say the word politics, you know, not in a bad way, but just people maneuvering and stuff like that. And, and here it's like preaching the word and sharing your faith and studying the Bible and touching people. And that's what I love about the ministry that I'm, I'm, I'm removed from a lot of the little political things. And, right. and I love that. So I, I fall in love with the ministry and I love that more than I love the archery and the bow hunting. So, you know, it naturally falls into place, but yeah, I do have to watch myself and be careful. But at the same time, I'm not afraid to spend time doing 
this thing that I love because yeah. it does recharge me and gives me energy to keep being giving in the ministry. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Well, John, you know a lot of people. I mean, we were talking about this, your, your Facebook account. You've got a, a million friends on your Facebook account. Who do you know who's standing out right now? Who's growing? Uh, who's multiplying disciples, leaders, and churches? You know, who's who do you look to and go, man, that person's really cranking? That's a good question. You know, it's funny. I, I look to A.T., not because his ministry is really cranking, but he is an individual and his his take on life and God and his balance of faith in the ministry to me is like very inspiring and appealing. So he's somebody that kind of in a different way in terms of ministry stuff, you. And you're talking should... about, you're talking about A.T. Arneson who leads a, a church in Chicago, right? Yes. Okay. Uh -huh. Great. A. Arneson. We're in a discipling relationship and I learn a lot from him in that regard and just as example. But then I think I think of you. I think of Joel Nagel. I think of of uh, of Joel Peed. I mean, great examples of guys leading smaller churches that are doing really well. Ed Anton, Tom Brown, Harlem Saleem. I mean, those are some people that I just look at and go, "Wow!" I mean, they're just year after year doing such a fantastic job. I really look up to. That's great. Thank you. Got one last question for you, John. This is a personal question. What advice would you give me? I, I would love to see my, my goal for these. I've been praying to God. I'd love to plant 10 churches in the next 10 years. In 10 years, I'll be 65. I don't know if I'll retire, but at least I'll be retirement age. What advice would you give me if I want to plant 10 churches in the next 10 years? What, what would I need to do? Give me, give, me, give me one takeaway. Throw me a bone here. <laughs> That's a tough one. You mean other than be Jesus? <laughs> That's hard. I would say if that were going to happen, like the most important thing is to replicate yourself, like okay. to raise up leaders. Because, you know, to take what you have now, it's like, you know, you can take orange juice because, you know, the neighbors come over and you don't have enough juice. So just add some water to it. That only works for so many friends. Right. And if, if you're not concentrating and replicated, if you're not concentrated enough yourself and replicating yourself enough, then it's going to get too thin. That I've seen that happen a number of times. I saw it happen in Texas when they planted a ton of churches. They literally sent out every single person in the church to start out literally, like not every single person, but every single person. They sent them all away. Wow. They had no single people back when Nick Young was there. That was amazing. Or Greg Moretzky up in uh, in the, the Rocky Mountains when he planted like 10 churches. I've seen that happen, but I've seen a lot of them come back. And a lot of them, because they, they just didn't have, they had enough to plant them, but they didn't have enough to replace people who needed to be replaced. I see. And so it's one thing to get it done. It's another thing for it, for those to really be successful. And it's like, there's a challenge of, do I just want to do it to get it done? Or do I want to do it in a manner that each of them is going to be successful? Right. And they're different questions. I've seen people do it the first way and, and learn that wasn't the best because they didn't do accomplish the second way. Mm. And so, you know, it goes back to the whole disciple thing that if there were, um, say, you're, I, I, won't, I won't divide your goal, but say your goal were 20 and five of those didn't work and you had to pull them back. Well, if you had done 10, 
and then they each work, then you'd end up having more in the long run right. than if you would have done the 20, like, you know, making one disciple, make 10 disciples works one each year. And so it's the same thing. And it's the challenge is going to be for you to raise up enough leaders to make all those churches successful and to have enough in the home base to replenish them when they inevitably need help to be replenished. Mm-hmm. That's that's fantastic. Thank you, John. It's worth the worth the phone call just right there. It's been great to spend time with you, and I value our friendship so much and respect you as a leader in the kingdom of God. And I want to wish you and Barry the very best going forward. And I know we'll, we'll keep in touch going forward. I want to thank you for joining today on the Rob Skinner podcast. My goal is to produce a weekly podcast that inspires you to live a no regrets life to make this life count, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. If you enjoyed this program, I'd like to ask you to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Have a great day and make this life count.